So the intent of this series is to go deeper in our faith and ask ourselves how we can get our interior life and our faith and our belief in God to match our exterior life in terms of how we live and act in our world. And the big idea of the Emotional Healthy Spirituality book and this sermon series is that emotional health and spiritual maturity go together. And when they do go together and they find themselves in sync, it unleashes a transformation in our lives. So each week, we're having a relatively profound and deep conversation about um, how to be an emotionally healthy person, because there's no way that you can separate, and, and the topic of emotional health and spiritual maturity are actually quite inexhaustible. One day, you will lose everything. Each of us is headed for a moment when we will be like Job and we will lose all of our relationships, all of our health, all of our possessions and our achievements and successes, and we will stand before God utterly naked. We will be stripped of everything. Now, if we're honest, our entire lives are a series of where we're going through this series of losses, and no, not a single person in this room is exempt. Every night you actually shed a layer of skin or two, and I was thinking, oh, wouldn't that be great if we could lose weight that way and I'd wake up in the morning 10 pounds lighter? The reality of our loss, and when we experience loss, is actually a critical issue to our spiritual maturity and our discipleship. And when we find throughout the scriptures, tell us that it's not possible for each one of us to grow and be mature and be a disciple of Jesus or grow into being a mother and a father of the faith unless we deal with issues of grief and loss in our life. And if we need to allow the grief and the loss to enlarge our hearts, because in a very real way, loss leads to wholeness and loss leads to death. So today we're going to look at Jesus and how he dealt with grief and loss as our example. Jesus gives us this model of what it looks like for us to be fully human and engage in what we would call unavoidable human condition where we're experiencing grief and loss and sadness. As much as we don't want to deal with it, it happens and Jesus gives us a model. The passage we're going to look at today is meant to melt us and move us. Um, just about a year ago, actually, Deb Haas and Julie Anderson were at the Garden of Gethsemane. So I've got a picture of that for you. I want you to know the place that we're in, even though it's a present-day photo um, with those very, very old trees. And there's a church, of course, in Israel. When you take a trip into um, journey through Israel, Palestine, and see the biblical um, landmarks, they build a church on top of every landmark there. And the Church of All Nations is built on top of the rock where tradition says Jesus went and he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the interior photo um, is the rock. You can see people kneeling and praying there because they believe that this could be the rock where Jesus knelt and prayed. And so we're going to read together this passage from Matthew 26. It'll be on the screen. And I want to encourage you as we read it, we're going to read it all together out loud. Enter into the passage. Pretend that you're there. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here 
Jesus is going to drink the whole cup. Jesus is looking at loss and the cup in front of him, and he's overwhelmed, and he's saddened, and he's troubled, and he's anguished. Don't forget that he's also experiencing a loss of friends here. Even Judas was close to Jesus. He spent three years developing these friendships, and Judas is now going to betray him, and Jesus already knows it. His 11 disciples who he served and he loved and he's washed their feet and he's cared for them and prayed for them and taught them. He's been patient with them. And they're going to abandon him. They're going to deny that they ever knew him. They're all going to desert Jesus. And then we have Israel, the nation that gave him his birth. These are God's chosen people and they're all going to desert him too. The world that Jesus loves is going to crucify him and do it all in the name of God, which he is the one in the flesh. Talk about a mess. What's incredible about this passage is that it refers to Jesus being handed over to the authorities. And in a very real sense, Jesus is going to let go of control. He's being handed over. Now, if I was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I would be tempted to just Cut this part out of the Bible. This is not your typical superhero like the Incredibles. I want Jesus to be strong. I want a conquering Messiah. I would have cleaned Jesus up for this passage. Made him look a little better. But Jesus gives us a very different picture of the one who's fully God and fully human. When he lays his face down and he prays in agony. The early church really struggled with this passage. They tried to minimize it. But we're actually meant to feel the full weight of Jesus' sorrow and loss. What's so heavy about this passage is Jesus wants this to be postponed. He's looking to God and he's asking, is there any other way out? God, is there another plan? Can you get your will done some other way without me having to drink this cup? If it's possible, God, please do it. And you notice that Jesus goes to pray the same prayer, and he does it three times. One of the important messages for us to catch here in this story has to do with the fact that Jesus' prayer is not answered. If we think Jesus is always going to give us health, wealth, and prosperity, and have all those bad things in our life removed, then this is the passage that shoots a hole right through that theory. It's important to note here that Jesus never gets his miracle. His prayer is literally, if it's possible, let salvation of the world happen some other way. Can we do that, God? If we think we're going to get a miracle and get our way with that miracle, or it's going to look a specific way, then this passage is showing us that our miracles are going to look radically different. In fact, we're not God. We don't get all our miracles. And Jesus didn't either. Jesus is teaching us here in this passage and modeling for us a whole new way of being a human being. What does it mean to be a human being on earth? And in this moment, Jesus is fully human and he is fully God. And in the middle of this fervent prayer, he's recognizing that God's divine will must be done and not his human will. He's struggling here with his human will. This passage brings to us a very important question for every follower of Jesus. 
How do you live in such a way that is when we walk through loss and grief, our souls are at large rather than constricted? There are a lot of ways that we can walk through grief and loss. There's a lot of ways we can experience that. And Pete Scazzaro in his book mentions three of them that I think are helpful. And the first is this, pay attention to it. We see in the prayers of David, in the Psalms, in Job, and Jeremiah, Job, for example, screams out his pain, holding nothing back. He curses the day of his birth, saying, may the day of my birth perish. If only my anguish could be weighed and all the misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sands of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. I think we tend to forget that two-thirds of the Psalms, most of them written by David, are laments. He's complaining to God, he's shouting at God, he's raging at God, he prays these wild prayers, and he tells God exactly what he's feeling, and this is the one prayer book or the one worship manual in all of our Bible. <clears throat> David wrote poetry after the death of Saul and his best friend Jonathan. He commanded the army to sing a lament to God. We have an entire Old Testament book called Lamentations. Ezekiel lamented, Daniel grieved, Jesus wept over Lazarus and cried out in grief over Jerusalem. Biblical grieving calls us to pour out our feelings and our losses to God. Now when I became a Christian, I was taught that anger was a sin. And that I was thinking I should be like Jesus and I'll stuff all these feelings of irritation and annoyance and resentment and hatred. And in doing so, I know that I miss God in many ways. I still do. I'm really impatient. I get frustrated and I get angry when I had feel, that, feel that I have limits on my life. I can't get everything done on my to-do list or everything I want to get accomplished. I want to be in control. But I already know in my head that I'm not in control and God is, but I still want to be in control. And when you and I don't take time to process before God, these kinds of feelings that make us human, fear, sadness, anger, we end up leaking. Our churches are filled with leaking Christians who have not treated their emotions as a discipleship issue. Grieving is not possible without paying attention to your anger and your sadness. There's a lot of people in churches. Churches are full of nice, and respectable people. Few people explode in anger, at least in public, but the majority stuff those difficult feelings. They trust that God will honor our noble efforts. And the result then is that we go around as Christians and we leak here in the church. We leak in soft ways, passive aggressive behavior, or maybe it's a sarcastic comment, or a nasty tone of voice, or the silent treatment. We leak. Now the second phase of biblical grieving is waiting in the confusing in-between. Again, I hate waiting for Ubers, buses, airplanes, and people. I even struggle waiting for my husband to finish his sentences. I really think he should be able to talk faster than he does. <laughs> in the Psalms, David waits on God, and he flees Saul, and he hides in the desert from his enemies. 
He knows God is good. He knows his love endures forever, but the problem is that the circumstances sure don't look that way. We experience the same struggle. When we experience loss or setback, God invites us to wait. Now this runs opposite to our culture, which is all about trying to stay up and be bigger and be better and go higher and achieve more success. We act like we have it all together even when we're falling apart. We try to live out this spirituality of ascent when we go through grief and loss. But the Christian faith is actually about descent to a cross and burial, which then leads to resurrection. So we can't grow spiritually and we can't experience emotional health without addressing this issue of grief and how we look at and how we approach loss in our life. We pay attention to the interruptions as from God somehow, and then we learn to wait, but it never happens naturally, because we like control. We like controlling what's going on around us. Grief and loss and learning to wait is about letting go and realizing that we are never going to be God. We don't get to play God. We don't get to control everybody and everything in our circumstances. And the sad thing is, some of us go through our losses and I want to acknowledge in this moment that some of you have lost a whole lot more than I. We go through these losses, and then you know what we do? We get up and we start fixing things and start all over again, trying to fix the problems. God's trying to get us to wait. And we're telling God, don't get lost. I'm going to solve this on my own. God sees our problems and wants us to wait. And here we are, seeing life as a problem that we can solve, We've invented new medicines and technology. We've gone to the moon. We perceive problems and then we solve those problems. So we have all these books that say six ways to find a maid, eight steps to a successful marriage, nine ways to improve your finances, 21 steps to fulfill your sex life. We've got a problem and we can solve it. The problem though at its deepest level is life is not a problem, but a mystery. Problems are to be solved, true mysteries are not. Phil Simmons writes, I wish I could have learned this lesson more easily. Each of us is brought to the cliff's edge, and at some moment, we can either back away from the edge in bitterness and confusion, or we leap off the edge into mystery. We hand ourselves over. We participate in mystery only when we let go of the solutions that we're trying to fix. And the letting go, when you are waiting in the in-between and you're choosing to fall off this cliff, that first step is always the hardest in letting go. So imagine yourself at a cliff and then God's inviting you to relinquish and fall off this cliff. And we think, oh, I'm going to die out here. God's going to forget about me. God's going to abandon me. I'm not willing to jump off the cliff. But here's the beauty. Here's the good news for today. We can fall off the cliff into the arms of a loving God. Because of the willingness of Christ to go to the cross, experience death, and then resurrection, we know that God will always be with us. So we can follow. And we can fall off that cliff and let go and relinquish, even when there's so much of us that is screaming for control. This is crazy, I know. But we know that God's arms will catch us when we let ourselves go. 
part of what happens when we let ourselves grieve is that we learn to wait and we unlearn control. We unlearn some of these images of God that are totally ridiculous and they're not true. Instead, we learn to embrace and experience mystery. You'll notice in this passage in Matthew that Jesus and he has three close friends, and they're all in Luke's gospel. It says they're stones throw away, which is about 30 to 50 feet yards, maybe 30 to 50 yards. Jesus needs friends. We need friends, but we don't need friends that are saying stupid things, right? We need friends who are willing to bow before the mystery of suffering and pain and sadness and death. We don't know what's really going on much in our own grief and loss. And when people are in anguish and they're sad and they're laying, on, laying their face down in prayer, we don't try to preach at them about how God's on his throne and so they can get up now. We don't try to tell them, oh, we think that when we know what God is doing because that will just make us feel comfortable. Instead, we're patient. We're patient with our friends. We're watchful and we pray. And here's another important truth about grief and loss. We need people with us who will pray for us, but we don't, don't need them to tell us what God is doing. So when someone's suffering, please don't tell them what God's doing because you don't really know what God is doing. We give people emotional space like a stone to throw away. We need fellowship, we need people, but we don't need fellowship that's in our face when we are experiencing grief and loss, because that's lonely, and nobody can grieve for you. You have to do it on your own. There's no getting around it. You can't plow through it. So when you're moving through your journey with Christ and you have a Gethsemane-type experience, you know that our souls are growing, but it's lonely, because nobody can do it for you. We grieve with others, but we can never do their grieving for them. So we need people with us, but hopefully not in our face. So remember, we're willing to wait, and we're journeying with others who are grieving. Let's all make a pact right now. Don't say stupid things, okay? <laughs> we learn to wait on God, and God will help people in his time. Now the third and last phase of biblical grieving is to let the old birth the new. I don't know where some of you are today when it comes to grief and loss, but God's invitation to you is to detach from controlling life through your grief and your loss so that you can begin to hear the voice of the one who loves you and the one who has come to give you life. Discovering this kind of life involves paying attention to the interruptions and then learning to wait. We can learn to listen and to follow. And something happens in our soul through grief and loss that happens in no other way. And this is the path to resurrection. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. So we know that some things have to die, or it just remains that we're going to stay stuck. That's why loss and grief for some of us in this room could be the best thing that ever happened, and yet it's the most horrible thing that's ever happened. And we find ourselves face down before God, and we're overwhelmed, overwhelmed, and we're at our limit, and we've been maxed out, and we feel like we're going to die. But God wants us to know that there is a resurrection.
But before the resurrection comes, remember, there's burials. And there's a waiting. And there's a transition. And so it's our choice to learn to pay attention to the interruptions. To learn to wait, even though everyone around us is going in the opposite direction. The promise is that if it dies, it produces many seeds. There's no other way but allowing grief and loss to enlarge your soul. Then we become the person who people run to with their pain because you know what? We've been there. We're seasoned. We have been matured. The invitation for us is to persevere and to stick with God when we want to quit because like Job, we have to wait. David had to wait. Abraham and Sarah had to wait. Ruth had to wait. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to wait. Moses had to wait. Jeremiah had to wait. Paul had to wait. And here in this passage, Jesus is waiting on the ground, crying out to the Father. And we, like Jesus, must let our stony hearts be broken. There is nothing scarier to me in a congregation than hearts that are growing hard and cold. When our heart's growing hard and people tell us the truth in love, it means nothing to us. We could have Jesus sitting right here in our face, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, doing signs and wonders, and if our heart is hard and cold, we believe we've already heard that before. They've been there, done that, nothing new. Nothing scarier than a hard heart. We want to invite the losses and the griefs of our life to cause our heart to become soft and malleable, open to God, and it would allow us to learn how to jump off that cliff into God's arms. God will always use our pain and grow our soul if we are open to the Holy Spirit and we can become a gift to others. I wish there was another way for this transformation to happen. I wish it was easier, but our faith teaches us that it comes through the cross, which ultimately leads to resurrection. I want to close with a prayer in the form of a poem. It was written by a Jesuit priest many years ago, and it's a beautiful prayer, so I've had it printed on the back of your um, small group reflection questions, so you don't have to write it down. Um, I want to invite you to pray with me out loud. The title of it is Patient Trust, and it's on your small group questions, it's also on the screen. Let's pray this together. Above all, trust is the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is a law of progress that is made by passing through some stages of instability, and that it may take a very long time. And so, I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time. That is to say, grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill will make